Hello and welcome to Contact Chi. Today's episode of Shabbat Replay is from our January 13th Friday night service. Rabbi Lizzie connected the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. to the ongoing struggle for justice in Israel and Palestine. Together with Rachel Goldberg, beloved Mishkan Davening team member who has been in rabbinical school in Israel for two years. Take it away, Rabbi. Months and months ago, we got together and we looked at the calendar and we looked at all of the all of the Jewish holidays and all the American holidays and then all of the things that were going on in our community and just thought to ourselves, okay, let's like get organized around this stuff so that when, for example, Martin Luther King Day weekend happens to coincide with the night we're hosting our Israel trip and book group reunion, we were like, oh yeah, let's just, you know, have a sermon that night where we talk about civil rights in Israel. That'll be easy. <laughs> and, and then it just so happened with that in the back of, the, sort of in the back of my mind at the beginning of this week, that I heard that our beloved davening team member and I would say spiritual leader before she started rabbinical school, but Rachel Goldberg, who is now in her penultimate year of rabbinical school, living in Jerusalem, I learned she was going to be back. And I thought, well, wow, you should do that for us. Um, <laughs> But, but really, no, I thought, you know, for, for those of you who have been around Mishkan, you know, for a long time, you have seen Rachel up on the bima conducting energy, leading services, being a teacher. Um, and like, it's a very special thing. You know, somebody goes off to, to do immersion in Jewish text and study for two years. I was sort of like, ah, I want to hear about that. Tell us about it. Tell us about what's magic about it. Tell us about the Torah you're learning. And, and also share with us what's hard. And in, that's very much in the spirit of, um, that's in the spirit of the book groups, which there were over a hundred people last year who read books and traveled with me, um, over the summer to, to Israel and to the West Bank, um, to the land that our people call Israel and Palestinians call Palestine. Um, and, and talking about it and talking respectfully about it and trying to unpack it and trying to reckon with the fruition of the prayer that we actually, if you were looking on page 24, may our eyes return, may our eyes clearly see that you've returned to Zion with compassion. Blessed are you, the one who restores your Shekhinah to Zion. Every single time we dive in the Amidah, we're looking toward, we're looking toward the east and praying for a return to the land of Israel. And obviously that's not without complication because in the 2000 years between, you know, the Jews were exiled by the Romans and the birth of the state of Israel in 1948, there are a bunch of people who lived there in that land. Um, and so we are now as Jewish people who have seen a return of God's presence to the land of Israel and Jewish people to the land of Israel, many Jewish people to the land of Israel after all that time, trying to figure out how to be Jews. So I want to love Rachel up because she actually is, she's going to share her Torah with us. And in the spirit of our class, 
um, and of the way that we talk about everything, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to real things at Mishkan or anywhere, I hope. Um, what, what we talked about in our class more than we talked about content in any way was we talked about how to talk and how to listen. And that when you feel that sense of, you know, like resistance or debate or anger or questioning coming up inside of you as you hear somebody say something that actually you profoundly disagree with or aren't sure about, notice it. First thing, notice it. And then notice why. And then keep listening. And then after this is over, I can tell you right now, Rachel is thrilled to sit and talk to anybody who wants to keep talking. And my, my hope and invitation here is that this is not like a sermon telling you what to think. It's absolutely not. Um, but it's a sermon sharing experience and sharing Torah. And so I thank you all for being, um, for being here and for being in the conversation. I know many of you are actually here for this conversation tonight. So, so glad that you are. Take it away. Well, first of all, Rabbi Lizzie, thank you for asking me to do this and for founding this community and being an important mentor for me for 11 years. Mishkan's been one of my spiritual homes for that long, and it just feels really good to be back here. So there's a lot I want to say, and um, Rabbi Lizzie helped me up until 5 p.m. to get it down in writing, and so if it's all right with you, I'm going to be looking at my notes to make sure I get it all. So this book of Torah that we're starting this week, the book of Exodus, begins by telling us our spiritual ancestors were in Egypt and there were rows of Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. What does this tell us? It tells us that while there was a time that Israelites were known and integrated as full members of Egyptian society and were allowed to live and thrive there, and just one generation brought a new political context in which they were not known. In other words, they became seen as strangers, gerim in Hebrew, and more explicitly seen as a threat. Within the first few lines of the Parsha, this new pharaoh describes the Israelites as a nefarious force, growing in numbers and power that could take over Egypt. And the story of enslavement of the Israelites begins. Of course, this is not the first time our forebears have engaged with notable Egyptians, nor done a dance of having power or being a stranger. Throughout the Torah, we've been both. Early in the book of Genesis, when a young Avram and Sarai, later Abraham and Sarah, first set out for the land of Canaan, they passed through Egypt as poor migrant strangers. Avram fears that the Egyptians will want to have their way with Sarai and will murder him in order to do so. He concocts a plan where they will tell the Egyptians that they are brother and sister, and any man who wants to marry Sarai will have to pay an extravagant dowry to her brother. And according to some of our great commentators, what Avram did not account for was that Sarai would catch the attention of the Pharaoh himself, who was actually able to afford that dowry. And there's no mistaking, if you read the comments from many of our commentators, that what Sarai experienced in the house of Pharaoh was a violation. 
physically, emotionally, spiritually. And understanding this part of Avram and Sarai's journey sheds light on their behavior in another significant encounter with an Egyptian handmaid named Hagar. Abraham and Sarah are known for being great hosts and opening their tent and caring for strangers, but in this encounter, Abraham and Sarah do not treat the the stranger particularly well. They are the ones holding power while Hagar, their servant, was, as her name states, literally Hagar, the stranger. Sarah had given Hagar to Abraham to conceive a child when she could not, and this led to jealousy and conflict between the two women, even though one held significant systemic power over the other. Eventually, After both women had conceived, Sarah tells her husband Abraham to banish Hagar, the Egyptian, and their son Ishmael, essentially sentencing them to death, except that God heard their cries and saw their suffering and provided them with a well of sustenance to survive. For a long time, I felt really angry at Abraham and Sarah for doing this, for Sarah for wanting to send Hagar out and to Abraham for listening to her. Except once I was able to contextualize that episode within their earlier experience when they were younger, where they were Gerim amongst Egyptians, I was able to have some sympathy for both of them. Even though they were very apparently abusing their power and essentially sending out not only strangers, they weren't actually strangers, they were their own kin to death. Hashem, Hashem heard the Gerim and saved them. Flash forward back to our Parsha, Moses, who was born into an oppressed class as a Hebrew, was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and raised inside the palace of Egypt. Shielded by his privilege, it wasn't until Yigdal Moshe that Moses actually grew up, that he went outside the palace and actually saw how his brethren were being treated. He saw that they were enslaved and had to reconcile that. It confronted who he was as an Egyptian, the pride that he had. And uh, he didn't behave so well, actually. He was enraged. And he actually responded by, by murdering an Egyptian that he saw beating an Israelite. And then afraid that maybe that wasn't the best way to pursue justice Um, and also afraid that he might be caught, he ran away. And immediately, he, uh, not immediately, he meets a wife, and he has a son, and they name their son Gershom, which literally means Gershom, stranger there. Because there, in that place and that time, Moses and his family were the Gerim. And immediately after that, after Moshe names his son Gershom, stranger there, the text says that God heard the Israelites moaning and saw their suffering, just as God had done multiple times for Hagar and Ishmael. What Torah shows us with this parallel, and what my teacher Judy Klitzner would call a subversive sequel, is that there's actually a dynamic dance through time, place, and context in which individuals and people can be the ones in power or the strangers, the ones oppressing or the ones oppressed. No human is inherently one or the other. 
Rabbi Lizzie asked me to talk about my experience in Israel over the past few years. And as I do, I want us to hold in mind a teaching from my dear friend and teacher, Rav Sarah Bramerschley. She says that the word emet, which is the Hebrew word for truth, is emet, spelled aleph, mem, taf. Aleph being the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, taf being the last letter of the alphabet, and mem being the letter right in the middle. So if we really want to grasp the whole truth, the whole emet, we need to recognize that the whole truth spans the entire potential of existence. So two and a half years ago, I had the opportunity to move to Israel to learn Torah immersively at Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. And, uh, and the learning's been profound, both formally inside the Midrash and informally in the actual world. Um, one thing that happened is that I fell in love with the land and delighted in a new experience of living in a place where Judaism actually makes sense. Like on Sukkot, this fall harvest festival, when we take like a lulav and an etrog, you know, like, and, and basically what we do is we shake fruit and leaves to God for rain. That's what we do. And in Israel, it actually rains when we do that. <laughs> we like, it makes sense. And then there are spiritual teachings. Like in Sukkot, there's this teaching that says that Sukkot is the anniversary of when the Mishkan was completed. So it says, like, at the very end of this book we're starting this week, it says that the Mishkan was completed, and then the Anane HaKavod, the clouds of God's glory, came down to fill up that space. And during Sukkot, in Eretz Israel, in the land of Israel, after six months of rain and absolutely not a cloud in the sky... When there's scorching heat and no respite from it, suddenly these clouds come and there's, there's relief. It's like, I understand how this spiritual mythology would be birthed in this place. There's this holiday called Tubishvat, which happens like in a few weeks, that's like the anniversary of the trees. And living in Chicago, this really never made sense. I was like, okay, like maybe it has to do with like, I don't know, like water melting under the ground, like it's in the roots, we don't see it. But, uh, but in Israel, there's actually like the shkidiot, the, the almond trees blossom, they like bloom suddenly. And then everything else from there blooms, flowers, like every crop, it's, uh, it's like remarkable. And so like, if, if you wanna see like all of it and like understand Judaism a little bit more, come. I, I wanna go into talking about something a little heavier. So let's take a deep breath. <sighs> because what I learned, unfortunately, in my first year there, is that Israel also goes through another distinct rhythm. And it's the rhythm of war. In the spring of 2021, when most of the population, at least the Israeli population, uh, was fully vaccinated, and things opened again, people joked that things must really be back to normal because there was a war. I remember the first time hearing missile sirens in May of 2021 and spending the next 11 days in and out of bomb shelters, 
um, as Hamas was firing rockets right into civilian centers, and there was violence breaking out amongst neighbors in the streets of much of the country. Most of the missiles that Hamas sent were deflected by Israel's defense system, Iron Dome, but still, it was really scary. Awareness of the war for me actually came two and a half weeks earlier when a group of my friends were actually outside the old city near Damascus Gate, which is the main entrance to and from the Muslim quarter, and they witnessed a group of Jews, a mob of Jews, wearing tzitzit and kippot, who looked like them, their brothers, attacking Palestinians and chanting the words, Mavet Arvim, which means death to Arabs. And I wish I could say that this was the only time I ever heard this slogan, but unfortunately it was only the first. Since then, I've seen it on graffiti all over Jerusalem, including in the Old City, including right outside the Kotel, the Western Wall, our holiest site in the world, or on the homes of Palestinians living in Hebron, a major Palestinian city with 200 Palestinian residents and 200,000 Palestinian residents and 800 Jewish settlers, along with 700 soldiers who live there to protect the 800 settlers whose presence in the city creates fear and provokes violence. I've been there and I've seen it. And most recently, I've heard these words chanted at a rally celebrating the victory of Israel's last election when the new national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir, was elected. People who would call themselves Israeli Jewish patriots and religious Jews were chanting death to Arabs. This is an utter chilul Hashem, a desecration of the divine name. Before these experiences, I had heard about many incidents of hatred and violence like this against Jews by Arabs and Palestinians, but what became impossible for me to unsee at this point was awareness that Jews, too, were committing acts of violence and even initiating them, often. Let's take a deep breath here. It was hard for me to see then, and I imagine it's also hard to hear. People think they know the whole truth based on one story or one account, and I saw it even in the close-knit community I was part of at Pardes, where my friends, fellow students, who had been present for this incident were on fire and wanted to talk about nothing but the Jews behaving badly that they had seen with their own eyes. But because of that, they felt like a threat to my classmates who weren't there, who didn't see that, who only had seen the letter that we got from the American embassy saying, stay away from the old city, it's dangerous there. Not mentioning the fact that the violence was actually being initiated by Jews. There was one night during the war, one of the last nights, that I went to a park near my house 
called the Tayelet. And it's this big promenade that overlooks across the Jerusalem Valley so much of the city. You can see the old city with holy sites of all three monotheistic religions. There's a big cemetery where many of our sages are buried. It's, it's really incredible all the time. And this night I was there. There were a lot less people there. Maybe I'm strange for having gone. Um, but I stood there. I sat there. And I looked across. And what I could see were helicopters from the IDF, the Israeli army, flying over, shining lights down on the Mount of Olives neighborhood, shining lights down outside the old city. I could see the blue and red lights from different police cars driving around. It happened to be a time where there was both a Jewish holiday and Muslim holiday where people set off fireworks. So I kept hearing explosions, some of which were definitely not fireworks. And I remember watching this, seeing it with my own eyes from across the valley, and noticing my inclination to make up a story in my mind of what was happening on the ground. But I had to stop and remind myself that even though it was happening right in front of me, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what the story was or the stories within the stories within the stories of, of each of the souls involved. So while times of escalation have a way of pushing individuals further toward extremes, this experience for me moved me to engage more deeply in solidarity work with Palestinians and fellow Jews who want to see a peaceful future. During the summer of 2021, I spent most of my days actually living within Palestinian communities in rural areas of the West Bank, seeing firsthand the harassment and the violence that they experience from people who look like me day in and day out. And as someone who cares very much about the Jewish people, it means something to me that this is being done in my name and in the name of protecting me. So I'll never forget what a Palestinian friend of mine once said. His name is Ali Awad. He was speaking to a group of Jews wanting to learn about the occupation. And he said, you know, when I was a kid, I used to see people who looked like you, who, who, would, wear, who would wear this, these tzitzit and, and, and the things on your head, the kipot. I used to see that and I would be afraid because everyone who hurt me or my family wore those. And he thanked us for coming there so that he knew he didn't have to be afraid, even if it was with good reason, of people who looked like us. And his children would be able to grow up and know that they didn't need to be afraid of all Jews and that actually we could work together toward getting out of it. So I have to be honest and say that having seen as much as I have with my own eyes, I feel regretful that I'm not able to go into more detail with you now. Um, but as Rabbi Lizzie said, if you're interested in, in, in learning more or engaging in solidarity work, there are lots of organizations doing really good work, and I'm happy to talk to you after the service. Come find me. Moshe, back to the Torah, 
grew up in the palace. But it took him becoming an adult and seeing the truth of the pain and oppression around him with his own eyes to actually acknowledge it happening. And once he did, he set into motion the greatest story of liberation ever told, one that movements of oppressed people would look at and quote for the next 3,000 years. What I will say is that if I've learned anything in this time, it's that the only way out of this situation will be together. Side by side, in partnership with our Palestinian neighbors, allies, kin, understanding and honoring that historically all of us have an ancestral claim and right to this same place. If we're able to see each other as kin, because we are, rather than gerim, strangers perpetually making enemies out of each other, then we might have a shot at peace and collective redemption. Thank you, and Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Replay is a production of Mishkan Chicago. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kalman Strauss. You can always see where and when our next service will be on our calendar. There's a link in the show notes. And if you appreciated the program, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I know you've heard it before, but it really does help. On behalf of Team Mishkan, thank you for listening. <laughs>